This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Jonah Dove Pesner. Rabbi Pesner serves as the director of the Religious Action Center for Reform Judaism and has held that position since 2015. In 2006, Rabbi Pesner founded Just Congregations, which is now incorporated into the Religious Action Center, which engaged clergy, professional, and volunteer leaders in interfaith efforts in pursuit of social justice. He has trained and mentored students at each of the four campuses of the Hebrew Union College and is on the board of the NAACP, the National Religious Partnership for the Environment, Joint for Justice, and other such organizations. He has been a congregational rabbi in Boston and in Westport, Connecticut, and is a husband and a father to four children. Rabbi Pezner, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Uh, it's awesome to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me. So I love your passage, which is uh, Deuteronomy 10, 18, 19. So please um, tell us uh, what happens in that passage or what's that passage about and uh, why is it important to you? Well, first of all, Mark, thank you for having me. And and let me just say this, this Pasha is all about you, my friend. I mean, this is a man who I'm looking at on the screen. I know, I know people at home listening can't see us, but I'm beaming uh, as I'm looking at a hero. This is a person who's invested in delivery of healthcare to the most vulnerable, um, the poorest of the poor in Africa and across the globe, who has made sure that emergency healthcare gets delivered in the Middle East and Jerusalem, regardless of anybody's religion or ethnic background, um, because pain and suffering and healthcare needs know no ethnic boundaries and they know no race or religion. So for your work with United Hetzlach and your work, Mark, with uh, African healthcare delivery, vote. And so I dedicate this Parsha to you Thank because you. It, you're, you're welcome, but the work speaks for itself. Uh, so many people's lives have been made better because of your philanthropic investments and the things you care about. So. Thank you for that. This this Torah portion sings your song because it really is about empathy. It's about having suffered and becoming the person who loves that person who suffers. So I uh, asked to reflect a little bit with you on my very favorite verses taken from Deuteronomy. This is the kind of portion that says that, you know, we're reminded that um, God upholds the cause of the widow, the cause of the orphan, and loves the stranger, providing food and clothing, saying, quote, you, meaning us, Mark, individual humans today, not just the original receivers of Torah at Mount Sinai, but each and every person who comes in the footsteps, having stood at Mount Sinai and uh, goes forward to this very day, that you too must love the stranger because you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I just want to repeat and let those words echo. You too must love the stranger because you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So I frame this in terms of empathy. It's about having experienced loss and suffering, uh, having been slaves, having been oppressed. Many people might then think you would turn to victory and say, now I'm free. I can do my thing. I can move forward and leave it behind. But God is saying, no, no, no. You don't run away from having been oppressed or having been a slave or having been a stranger. You run towards empathy, the person who now suffers, um, the person who seeks healthcare, the person who is hungry, the person these three categories, by the way, that the Torah uses, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, the rabbis have a long discussion about why those three categories, and they land on 
these being the three most vulnerable classes of people in a society. The widow, because back in the ancient Near East, if you were a widow, you had no male heir to take care of you. If you were an orphan, you had no father to protect you. Or the stranger who did not have the protections of a tribe or a clan. So these three most vulnerable categories, we are not just to tolerate them, Mark, we are to love them. So what does love mean? So I, I think probably one of the worst dictionary definitions is that of love, which I believe, at least in one dictionary, is a feeling of intense affection. That's not what the Bible is talking about. Because in Judaism, love is always an, 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 what Rabbi Wolpe calls an enacted emotion. In other words, you can't say, I love my wife and just feel nicely towards her and do nothing for her or your children. Love is, we kind of know this intuitively, but it always helps to be reminded. Love is something that's manifested in action. It can also have a feeling of intense affection, but it's primarily an action. So what does it mean to love the stranger in a Jewish context? I think that's a brilliant question. And uh, the proof is in the pudding of what the text tells you that you're supposed to do as a result of that love, right? The Torah is this whole collection of norms and rules and obligations that rise up out of love. And we should just remember that the kind of paradigm of love first is experience between God and people right? So like we experience God's love. God shows God's love by giving us Torah, by getting, setting us up for obligations and covenant. We are in mutuality, not a contract, but a covenant. So we enter into this loving relationship with God. We receive the gift of life, the gift of community, the gift of joy, of experience, the gift of sight, experience. And in return, we exchange with God the willingness to follow in the path of righteousness and, and goodness. Then we're supposed to then, having had that experience of love with our creator, that becomes the template of all relationship with all humans. And so love becomes the binding force that makes us human, not just as an I, but an I-thou. In other words, as Buber would say, like in covenantal relationship with other humans, there's content to that, right? So like the question is, how do we treat other humans? To love the stranger is to say, okay, that means I must make sure that the stranger is welcomed into community, that the stranger has a home, that the stranger has a place to be, that the stranger has protections, that the stranger has what to eat. Just think about Abraham. Abraham and Sarah sit with their tent open at all sides. They see three strangers approaching and they both rush out. With That's right. The word rush is used five times in that, in that short sequence. Nice. Because they, nice. rush, they right. rush to help the stranger. who They have no idea the stranger is an angel, but they rush to help the stranger. Right. Dafka, because the stranger is a stranger, not in spite of that fact. So I think love does have content. I think it does carry obligation. And then look, Mark, you and I both know this from our, our personal lives. Like it isn't enough just to feel feelings for somebody. You can't just say, well, I'm sorry. I feel a love for you. I just didn't behave in such a way that demonstrated my love. My love calls me into some sort of sacred obligation to treat you, to act with deeds. Right. So if somebody came to you as a rabbi and said, I love the Torah, I believe in the Torah, and I believe the Torah is, well, you and I think it is, the great guidebook. It's not a history book or a law book or a cookbook. It's fundamentally a guidebook to help guide our lives. I believe that's what Torah means, right? To, to learn, right? It's to how do we learn to guide our lives? Right, it's like direction. It's uh, from the same root of, of taking a shot of an arrow. So it's like trying to point in the right direction. Right, to guide uh, us. Exactly. So if someone comes to you and says, the Torah is my guidebook, I'm all in on Deuteronomy 10, 18. How can I love the stranger? If someone comes to you on one foot, the proverbial rabbinic one foot, and says, how do I do Deuteronomy 18 in the most profound sense? How do you respond? I wish I were smart as Hillel, who was able to uh, answer that question. 
I will duck a little bit to say what the genius of Hillel's response when Hillel said the whole Torah is love your fellow as you love yourself. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. People miss the point. He was able to boil it down to love your fellow as you love yourself, but, or what is hateful to you, do you want to know other person? But he doesn't stop there. He says the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. In other words, do what Mark Gerson does. Devote your entire life to a journey of exploration and learning. The Torah is so eternal and so rich with so many generations of commentary to master it in a week, a month, a year, a lifetime is impossible. So for me, the way I understand this notion of loving the stranger, I actually am guided by a prophet in our own midst, a guy named Brian Stevenson, who wrote a great book called Just Mercy, which is now actually a movie. And he's devoted his life to working on death row in the deep South, helping people who were uh, on death row and may have been falsely incarcerated appeal their um, death penalty decisions. And he's gotten a lot of people um, save their lives. And in some cases got them out of jail because they didn't actually commit the crime. He talks in his book about getting proximate. And he says the kind of sin of, of contemporary society is we're not proximate with people who are not like us. We don't know one another. We don't hear each other's stories. We don't know one another's pain. Most of us have never sat with someone on death row, sat with someone in, in incarceration, sat with someone who is addicted, sat with somebody who has been homeless and really understood who they are and what their story is and get close to them, get proximate. So I think the first part about loving the stranger, the person who is not like us, is at least showing up and being curious and being open. And Mark, another thing I appreciate about you is you surround yourself by people who think differently than you and want to learn from them and hear from them. And I Absolutely. think that's a guide for all of us to just get proximate to people who don't look like us or talk like us or uh, agree with us. And then act. So if someone says, I, I, I want to act with love because if someone says to you, love is not just a feeling of intense affection, but it's an action. So I can get proximate, which um, may be easier or harder depending on one's particular circumstances in any one moment, but the commandment to love a stranger is eternal. How should one do it? I know that um, my Christian friends have a wonderful expression of, called sacrificial giving, you know, and, and I've seen it in, in churches where people will come and, and you can tell they'll give basically all they have that week to I'm usually speaking on behalf of African Mission Healthcare, so to healthcare in Africa. So that's sacrificial giving because they're sacrificing something to give to somebody they'll never meet, never see, which is a stranger. So how do you think someone could fulfill this commandment, perhaps uh, in addition to being proximate with those? And, and that's so important to get proximate with those who, who they would not run into normally. It's very possible, very difficult. But is there anything to do in addition to that that kind of should be incumbent upon everybody? You know, Marcus, I look at you on the screen and I see the scene of Jerusalem behind you. I think about the times that I lived in Israel and survived bus bombings. Huh. And there's an incredible ritual that happens. Thank God, not recently. Right. But there was a ritual that I witnessed firsthand where you would have volunteers who would literally rush towards the site of a tragic incident, like a, an attack on human lives. Both first as first responders, right? Knowing that there might be a second bomb or there. Oh, United Hatzalah got started doing this. Exactly. Okay. So this is like, this is your Torah, right? This is the thing that you, right? And that I have witnessed firsthand. And then after, even after providing frontline care to the, the people whose bodies have been ripped apart, then Mark, there are the people who as volunteers come and lovingly, and this is a little graphic, so forgive me, but it's, it's real. They scrape the body parts off of the sidewalk and collect them and gather them together so that there can be some burial, some respect for the sacred vessel that was a human life that was lost. 
And no one will ever be able to thank. This is the ultimate act of grace, right? Is to not turn your head or run away from the sacred vessel that has been shattered, a human life that has been lost, but rather to rush towards it and to lovingly embrace and assemble into some kind of wholeness, this sacred vessel to be able to be buried and allow the soul to go to the next place. And I say that because once a person is dead, we call in, in Judaism a funeral is called a levayah, meaning an accompaniment. There is a way in which you are an accompanying the person to their next place. And they, ha- they will never be able to thank you. They won't know that you did it. So it's like the ultimate act of grace. So this is a way that I think um, I can't give you kind of a textbook definition or understanding of how we act in love. But I think there's something about selflessness that knowing that the thing that you are doing can never be repaid, that there are no thanks in the world. It's simply an act of grace and love. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's, it's saying that the basically recipient of your love will never know who you are. They'll never know who to thank. And you don't want to be thanked because that's not what it's about. And I, I think one of the, the passage you chose is, is one of the great manifestations of how extraordinarily progressive the Torah is in that probably the dumbest moral idea is to say it's natural and therefore I should do it. Because most of what be or much of what being moral is, is overcoming what's natural and doing what's right. And if we think about this passage, loving the stranger is one of the least natural things for people. I mean, I think about the 2018, the, the missionary in the Indian Ocean who went to that uh, tiny island of off of India of people who had been completely untouched by modernity. There were a couple dozen people. It's against Indian law to go to that island. He goes to the island and he's promptly slaughtered. And the Indian authorities didn't prosecute him because they said, basically, these people, they, they, they had, they didn't use this term, but they had no Torah. They had never been exposed to it. Loving the stranger is totally unnatural because that response is what's natural is fear of the stranger, dislike of the stranger, thinking that the stranger is someone who, who can safely be presumed to want to harm you. That was the natural reaction to the stranger. In comes the Torah and says, no, no, no. Not only should you not fear the stranger or God forbid harm the stranger, but you have to love the stranger. It's, it's maybe the most progressive idea in the history of humankind. Amen. And I want to really put a fine point underneath that. And I would even argue the Torah, in, a, in the best sense of the word, is a radical document, right? It was a radical step forward in human history. The idea that it was normative to sacrifice your child, your firstborn child to the deity and God comes in and says to Abraham, do not sacrifice your child to me, but rather give yourselves to me in love through deeds and actions, one of which is loving the stranger. Now, here's where it gets really radical. And I love this. I love this piece, right? 36 times the Torah repeats differently. Love the stranger as you, uh, because you were strange in Egypt. One time it says, love your fellow, your neighbor, the person who's proximate to me, uh, proximate to you as you love yourself. The rabbis then point out it's 36 times harder to love the stranger it is to love your neighbor because of the point you just made, Mark, which is it is the it is the human state of things to be afraid, to be skeptical, to be angry at, and frankly, just to get political for a moment. Look at the moment in time that we're in. The unprecedented level of xenophobia, anti-Jewish bigotry, anti-Muslim bigotry, racism, this kind of stoking by white nationalists of fear of the other, the migrant, the refugee, the stranger calls us not just as Jews, but as humans to stay, take a step back and say, wait a minute, should we allow our base instincts to be afraid of and threatened by the stranger control policy and community? Or ought we not hear the radical message thousands of years ago of the Torah, which seems more relevant now today than ever? 
And that's such an interesting point about uh, love your neighbor only once and love the stranger in various forms 36 times. Because it, it all, the Bible also never says love your children because no one has to tell you to do it. It's, it's so natural. It, it's kind of like no doctor ever said to a patient, whatever you do tomorrow, go to the bathroom. So, Mark, what does it tell us that it, we're commanded to honor our parents? <laughs> well, that's very that's interesting. <laughs> that's a very interesting question. Now, interestingly, it doesn't say love your parents. It says honor your mother and your father. Perhaps because love is natural, perhaps because that's not the point. The point is you have to honor. Right. And it's interesting that we're commanded to love because that would go back to the original question you posed, which is love just emotion and a feeling. Because you might argue, well, you can't command someone to love your child or love your parent because that's a feeling. But you have to at least act with respect. On the other hand, it does say love the neighbor, love the stranger. And love God. So the silence of loving parents and love. Oh, very. In fact, that gets repeated over and over, right? The over Abba, the place, yeah. Um, at the Hecha, right? You should, right? So, and by the way, that again means obligation. You, you don't just love God by feeling it. And by the way, this may be a place where Christians and Jews have an uh, ongoing healthy dialogue, right? Where, and in the rabbinic literature, there's a lot of polemics saying to, to Christians, it's not enough just to express a love for the deity, for God, for Jesus. It's about your deeds demonstrating that love. So there's a beautiful prayer in the morning that we say, which is, God shows God love to us through commandments. And when we activate those commandments, wow. that's how we show that we actually love God back. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and I think it is very interesting that we are commanded to love because if love was just a feeling of intense affection, being commanded to do it would make no sense. But it's also a very uh, Jewish in the sense, it's right in the Torah idea that feelings follow actions. So if someone says, I'd like to be more generous. The Jewish answer is not, well, let's go investigate what happened in your childhood to, to make you not as generous as you'd like. It would just, just, give, just give every day, right? Just give every single day, give consistently, give every day. And then after a month or two, you'll be a generous person. And that's what it's saying. So if you, you can be commanded to love, just act lovingly every day with consistency, develop the habit, and then you'll end up loving God or you'll love the neighbor or you'll love the stranger, whoever you want to love. You know, I love that. And there's two illustrations of that. One is, when we stood at Sinai and entered into the covenant and God offered it to us, the text tells us that the people spoke in one voice saying, all of this we will do and we will hear. Now you might think it would put hearing first, like let's hear the covenant, let's hear the commandments and then we'll do them. But the people are actually understanding you, you hear them by doing them. Just start doing tzedek, start doing tzedakah, be a good human, follow the obligations of Torah. And in that process of doing, you'll get it. A second illustration is the famous mm. Nachman of Bratislav gets asked, if you are told the Messiah is coming, but you're in the middle of planting a tree, hmm. should you stop planting the tree and go greet the Messiah? To which Nachman says, finish planting the tree. Why that is say to that? say, the act of planting of the tree is the thing that will bring on Messiah. Hmm. It is through our, the investment in our world, in people, in the acts of righteousness and compassion that will be the coming of the Messiah. That I think was his implicit teaching. So you, in other words, you, you, you will get Messianess by behaving in such a way that embodies Messianess, if that makes sense. And by the way, this is a different framework than the Christological understanding of Messiah, obviously, which is a tangent we could get into or not into, but for Jews, the Messiah hasn't come yet and will only come when we do the things that need to be done to bring about a world in which the Messiah makes sense. And that's why we talk about preparing the world for the Messiah. That's, that's, that's our, probably our fundamental task, prepare the world for the Messiah. Correct. So Rabbi Pezzer, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about this sacred text. And we always move from, uh, the final question is always moving from this text, the Bible, to another text. 
which is Andre Malraux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says, um, the first page of the book, he says, uh, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years as uh, serving as a rabbi and such a leader, and in many cases, a former of the uh, progressive Jewish community, uh, what are two things that you learned about humankind? I like to say it's all about the relationships. How do I put this politely? I get plenty of strongly worded emails. I get tweeted at, you know, for people- From the right or from the left or from anywhere? All from <laughs> from everywhere, you know, okay. Jewish, not Jewish, liberal, conservative, you know, because it's never, I'm never, you know, everybody, I'm a Rorschach of what people want to see happen in the world. And what I do when that happens is I reach out and, and ask for conversation and relationship. And almost invariably, when somebody, the more angry a person is, why did you say that? How could you do that? And I say, I try and live by this practice where I will listen a lot and then say, I can tell that this really matters deeply to you. Can you help me by telling me a story about you to help me understand why that's important to you? And almost invariably, the person I'm dialoguing with or meeting with or listening to melts and connects and opens. And in that space, I experience love. Now, that's fascinating. When that happens, and I, th I think what you're saying is that comes from the right and the left, whether you're critics from the right or from the left, that, that same experience happens. Does the anger from the other person diminish? Oh, yeah. I mean, almost always their anger turns into openness and sometimes love. I have some people with whom I have deep, enduring relationship that came out of anger and frustration, who I continue to turn to, and some of whom continue to turn to me. But I also want to say this whole right-left thing to me is specious. You know, it, it overly makes binary something that is hopelessly complex. Humans are mosaics of experiences, emotions, ideas. And so to me, I'm like, I'm not going to get sucked in. Somebody's frustrated about something I said or something I did. I just want to know the human and the other end of this relationship and understand who they are and why they feel wow. what they feel and, and make space for love to come into that. I, you know, when I, I quote King a lot, you know, who said, hate can't drive out hate, only love can do that. And the same way that darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can do that. It's a great analogy. You, you can't get more darkness in a room and you have to turn on a light and then the darkness goes. So I have turned when I am, when people come at me with hate, when I really try and both genuinely model love, but really practice love, I am repaid with love. And I know it sounds, I mean, this may sound hokey to your listeners who say, oh, come on. I'm 52 years old. In a, in a couple of days, I'm going to celebrate my 52nd birthday. It hasn't let me down yet. Wow. And and I, I love what you said about complexity. And I believe in Hebrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's there's no singular word for face. It's only faces. Panim. Yeah, right. exactly. The, that's the that's plural, words, right? Yeah. It is plural. It's only plural because nobody has one face. Beautiful. Beautiful. But that's what you're saying. It's like when you call someone, and, and I think, uh, so if, uh, Dr. King's grave, I believe it's Ralph Abernathy wrote, Here Comes the Dreamer. From, from, well, that, was, that was from, from Joseph. Yeah. And um, yeah, oh, yes, for sure. Um, when, when, his, when Joseph, when he's approaching them in the field, they said, Here Comes the Dreamer. And I think another way to interpret it, certainly Ralph Abernathy's is one beautiful way to interpret it. Another way to interpret it is as soon as they boiled Joseph down to one face, he's just a dreamer, he was finished. They took away all this complexity. And by the way, there there is a Hebrew construction for binary. Like 
you could it could have been panayim, which should have meant the two faces, right? Anytime like you want to say just two of something, you can Hebrew has that idiom where you can just say, but it says panim, not panayim. In other words, multiple faces, not just oh, interesting. Two. So it panayim, is, which doesn't exist, right? Doesn't exist. And panayim would mean two of face. Two correct. Two of correct. singular face. It's like exist. if you said shanatayim, that would mean two years, or shavuayim means two weeks. Right. So there's a way to say two of something. Shana time, two years time. There is no panatayim that I've ever heard of. It's panim. There are multiple, multiple faces. So I love that you're saying that. And I think our society is a metaphor. It's too easy to boil everything down to right, left. I don't live in that space. And I, I you know, I'm a good friend of Reverend William Barber, who likes to say he is an evangelical, black, conservative, progressive Christian who is of Hebrew origins. I mean, it's like we're much more multifaceted and complex than you could boil us down. And I know you, Mark Gerson. No, would you? Are you conservative? Are you libertarian? Are you, you know, pro-business? Your heart bleeds compassion in a way that would defy the categories that some people might put into obvious political. I won't let people do that to you, and I won't let that do that to any human. That's beautiful. Well, uh, Jonah, thank you as always for such a fascinating conversation, and. Uh, I so deeply appreciate your friendship and for all you do for the Jewish people and so many others. And uh, thank you for coming on to the uh, Rabbi's Husband. It's been a pleasure. May God bless you and keep you and shine upon you and be good to you and give you and your family. And more important, Mark, all the human beings that your philanthropic efforts reach blessings and peace. Thank you. You are the God of the brave. If you